If you can't get rid of the skeleton in your closet, you'd best take it out and teach it to dance. It's better to burn the candle at both ends and in the middle, too, than to put it away in the closet and let the mice eat it. Good closets make for a good marriage. And above all, watch with glittering eyes the whole world around you, because the greatest secrets are always hidden in the most unlikely places. I'm Lynn Miller. And I'm John Modaff, and this is The Unruly Muse. Are you ready today to talk about our theme, closets? Yes, closets, yes. And first, a nod to our teaser contributors, Shaw, Van Dyke, Brent, and Dahl. Yes, uh, what would we do without George Bernard Shaw? Sometimes he's very on it. Have you been thinking about all those closets people have? Yes, closets as metaphor, and closets as real places, like broom closets and linen closets. Utility closets, walk-in closets. Then there's water closets and junk closets. And let's not forget the scary and stuffed hall closets, or, my favorite, the closet of forgotten dreams. Mm, Yes, and hats off to C.S. Lewis for the wardrobe. It seems like... You can't talk about closets without talking about secrets. Right. It's a place to hide metaphorically and actually. Yeah. I mean, you can stuff things away. People can open that door and discover things they never should have discovered. Yes, like opening the Christmas presents earlier than Christmas. That's right. Or you reach for a bowling ball and a femur falls out. I know. That's kind of a scary one. Well... (laughs) Speaking of things people hide, that kind of brings us to our first song. People sometimes hide right out into the open, as in your song, The Ballad of Molly Bean. On the bloody page of history, a name we've rarely seen is that Civil War combatant, a girl named Molly Bean. Some say she was a prostitute, Looking for a new career So she tied her assets down real hard And cut her hair to the ears I'm tired of working on my back, she said I just can't get no traction I'd rather strap my body down And get into the action Ten Union soldiers fell at Gettysburg found her out, arrested her and said she spied. She told the judge, except for manhood, nothing I ever did was a lie. The men she saved, comrades all, came to her defense. They said, hey judge, to string her up, don't make no southern sense. So the gavel came down in my left town. The guard she'd met in prison Then they went to Tennessee on foot Far from the derision Every once in a while a reporter shows up Or a historian on a mission They see Molly smoking on the porch In marvelous condition She says, I did not fight for slavery Slaving never ends I fought for what I thought was right For family and for friends 
to be a man To show men how it's done Then go ahead, pick up a gun Then come back when you're through Some fleeting glory Or some other role in the scene But always remember to sing the last verse Of the ballad of Molly Bean Oh, you fellow soldiers The veteran and the green To say, yes, I can, this makes you a man just ask old Molly Bean Such an intriguing song, John, and I learned a lot from it, too. Tell us about how you decided to put to music Molly Bean's story. Well, I must first admit, anyone who knows Molly Bean, a.k.a. Melvin Bean, soldier for the South in the Civil War, might realize I've taken a few liberties, as most people do. The broad strokes of the story are correct. And I'm not sure if the person that she moved to Tennessee with was one of her old prison guards, but I thought that was just such a great possibility. Yes. So we might call my rendering of her tale nonfiction. Yeah, or creative nonfiction. But um, there we go. I really like the line, some said she was a prostitute. And as we know, that is often leveled at women when we wish to do something bold and different. We get called mm -hmm. that, you know. The lowest blow at the time that you could deal against somebody. But I thought, all right, even though it may be mythical and not true of her, there wasn't any really strong contradictory evidence that I saw. And it just, in a sense, made her move that much more bold, that she went from really being, a, in a way, enslaved by men, or at least allowing herself to become their property momentarily, to fighting alongside them, and at last getting a chance to run some of them through. Well, there's such a tradition in the 19th century, and of course the 20th, and now, but back then, about women dressing as men, uh, cross-dressing so that they could have a bigger participation in all kinds of professions, society. I mean, she was not the first, and she was certainly not the last to do this. Absolutely. And what makes what she did a form of closeting is interesting. I think most of the time, the primary meaning of closeting or becoming closeted is there's a hiding for safety or to avoid some kind of unpleasant condition or situation or judgment. In her case, she closeted her sex, and she therefore, by default, became a man. That's right. So she used that to her advantage right out in the open. So the hiding that she did enabled certain behaviors and situations that uh, typically closeting we wouldn't think of. You know, she was empowered by her closeting of her sex. Well, I can't resist but bring up Virginia Woolf and Vita Sackville-West, who were lovers, and in an homage to, to Vita, Virginia Woolf wrote the novel Orlando. It's a marvelous novel of romps through time and gender changing. But back to your poem, which 
I have to call it a poem because it's really complex and interesting. That line, Slavin never ends, and that refers mm-hmm. so much to both gender and race. I was concerned, I've got to say, because I was speaking in a complimentary fashion about a person who was fighting for the South. And so that raised the slavery question. I thought, what would she have thought or what could she have thought about this? Mm-hmm. That, was, you know, that wasn't what we would expect, right? Because if there were 300,000 people fighting for the South, there were probably 20,000 different reasons. That's right. And so what else could motivate somebody to fight? Well, it would, first of all, you'd have to settle the fundamental philosophical question about slavery. And for her, it was, her answer was, it doesn't matter what we do. It never ends. Right. And that, I think, freed her up then to say, but there's still a fight here. Have to fight it. Have to. Yeah. And here we are today. Right. I think it's fair to say that the whole metaphor of closets has to do with taking great risk in the midst of great vulnerability. I mean, people put things in the closets or they are in the closet sexually because it's too scary to come out. Maybe a parent will disown you if they know the truth about you. Maybe in her case, she would have been, you know, strung up. She would have been killed a number of ways if they had known who she really was. I'm very impressive that she said, okay, the war is over. I'm done. She went back to being Molly at the end. Mm -hmm. And uh, she wasn't bitter, uh, at least the way I see her smoking on the porch. As we talked and corresponded, we kept coming back to the hiding of things, keeping in the in the half light of things, and really it was all about what is evident and what is not, and then the the kinds of thinking that gets set off by that. What are people hiding? And this, to me, brings us to our first poem, the last detail, because sometimes the perceiver is hiding and putting someone in a closet. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And not wanting or maybe very begrudgingly or reluctantly admitting to themselves the truth of what they're seeing. Well, the last detail is a poem, a new poem by Jack Cooper, whom we've performed on the show before. He lives in Oregon. It was published in ABQ in print in 2021. This is his genesis. This poem was written at a time I worked as a grant writer in a school for deaf children near downtown Los Angeles. Some would say the homeless capital of the United States because of the year-round mild weather. Almost no one ever wears an overcoat in L.A. unless it's also their bed for the night. As it was for this woman some of us had seen before. Her life, set against an office party two stories above her, struck me as an embarrassing contrast itself. And he doesn't mean her life, but the fact that people are partying above a difficult life. The last detail. A woman slides along the sidewalk. One heavy leg at a time. Her shoes cast in shame. Her knees made of stale bread. She's too young to be hunched over. As if she carried on her back. A full load of worry for the village fire. It's It's 70 70 Los Los Angeles Angeles degrees degrees out. out. And she wears an old Chicago overcoat. Which is also her bed and blanket for the night. What people give her, she accepts. No longer bothering to take control. As if the world were nothing but weather. I watch from a window in my office. Where it's someone's birthday today. And there's a big 
white cake. With pink letters that say, and many more. More of the same, but older. Years layered onto years for the hell of it. The white getting whiter. The rich getting more of everything. There's a billionaire from Australia who's building a second Titanic down to the last detail. I want to spend the money I got before I die, he said on TV, as if asking time for permission to to end end the the world world with with him. Thank you, Jack. Fantastic poem. Yes. It really shows the monstrousness of this magnate recreating a past relic rather than helping people in the present, like this homeless woman that Jack is writing about. She feels ashamed in the poem, but he, as Jack pointed out to me, is who should be ashamed. He's a plunder-the-earth kind of person. Well, there he is in his office, and it's just an office. He's placed his narrator, his persona, in this office above the city and the suffering. And yeah, he starts to feel guilty, if not a little ridiculous, amidst this um, plenty but then goes right to the most bodacious example he can think of this sort of excess as comparison. That's right. The Titanic in its time was the most expensive, the largest, the most opulent ship ever made. And then, of course, it sank on its maiden voyage. The closeting action in this poem is that we see and hear the speaker revealing to himself his own predicament. Right, and I love the sense of place in terms of closet in this poem because the white people are above the street where the homeless person toils just to walk. They're insulated. Their closet is the closet of privilege above the street, just like the Titanic sailed the waves, oblivious Mm -hmm. to the iceberg coming up, but also oblivious to the opulence. Yes. Well, it's hard to enjoy and appreciate good fortune and at the very same time acknowledge the depredation and deprivation that's always going to be around you. It's very hard to hold those two thoughts in mind at the same time without one of them obscuring the other. Well, thank you, Jack, for a very thoughtful poem. I think he he treaded some very interesting and hazardous moral edges in that poem. I agree. People don't always hide things from themselves on purpose. Maybe just the assumptions we make about what we think is happening motivate some of our action. And then we act to see if we were right. And this moves us to a wonderful excerpt from a novel that you are now working on. What can you tell us about it? Okay, this novel is called The Surrogate. It's, it's a novel in progress. The novel begins with a family grieving for the loss of a son. And walking into this family very soon after is a young man very much like him in terms of being kind of a golden boy, a good listener, etc. And the family accepts him into their fold. The narrator in the novel, Alexandra, called Alex, is bisexual and falls in love with him. In this excerpt, Nathaniel, the uh, surrogate, proposes to her. Nathaniel said, I meant to wait until a bit later, but I have something for you. He pushed a small box toward me. Inside was a perfect emerald in a simple gold setting. I slipped it on. Hmm, maybe it needs to be half-size smaller, but it's so perfect with those eyes of yours that change from gray to hazel to green. 
He smiled at me, his own eyes a deep blue. I guess this isn't exactly a surprise, but what do you think about getting married? To me. I was caught completely off guard. I'd never thought ahead to marriage. With anyone. For a moment, I just stared at him. But I'm surprised. When he looked disappointed, I blurted, And so happy, but... But? I'm not sure how to put this because it's something we haven't talked about very much. My mind felt oddly blank, as it often did when I didn't know how to proceed. I looked down at the wooden door to the restaurant, noticing how the oval glass in the middle looked wavy and mirrored the room in a distorted way. Nathaniel, waiting patiently, looked both curious and perplexed. I stared down at the tabletop. Remember, I told you about my relationship with Nita before I met you? He nodded. I've had other female lovers earlier in my life. I, I guess I'm wondering if you're concerned about my sexual past, if, if you might worry that maybe I'd be attracted to a woman again. Are you worried about that? I didn't know what to say. In my 20s, I'd had relationships with men and women, and sometimes that fluidity delighted me and, and other times concerned me. It wasn't something I felt I had much control over. You could just as well be interested in another at some point. Why would it matter whether it was a woman or a man? I remained silent. Why did it matter? For some reason to me, it did. At this point in my life, I wanted certainty about something I'd never been certain about. We can't predict who either of us might be attracted to in the future. What's important is how we feel about honoring our commitments. I agree. That's something we can control. Honor. Another word like trust. Both were much more than words to me. But looking across the table, I realized that I didn't know at all what those words might mean to Nathaniel. We'd never been tested in our 11 months of knowing each other. I could ask you the same thing. Nathaniel smoothed the tablecloth in front of him absently. You know, I was involved with a woman who was married. She was older. That wasn't the first time I was with someone married either. I never thought much about the future with people I've been with, so a lot of things didn't matter to me. I guess you could say that I was a little shallow, more concerned about how I felt, about my pleasure and my comfort, rather than how I was affecting other people. I found myself holding my breath. Were both Nathaniel and I easily distracted? What might that mean if we got married? That changed when I met you. I reached for his hand. I've never felt this way about anyone either. I feel serious. I can see possibilities with you. A future. Before I wondered if I was a capricious person, having affairs with both men and women, not making a serious commitment. I didn't really pay much attention to the consequences of what I was doing. I, I wasn't thinking long term. Nathaniel nodded, his eyes on mine. I realized I'd been skating through life without paying attention to how time was passing. I didn't know what I wanted. We sat for a moment, oblivious to the other tables around us. I don't want you to think that someone like Nita was an experiment. I genuinely was attracted to her and enjoyed being with her. You didn't ask this, but I want to tell you that I never cheated on anyone I was with. I, I guess you could say I've been a serial monogamist. I suppose that's not exactly a romantic term. I realize that being exclusive in my marriage, our marriage, would be important to me. I agree. He leaned his head on his hand 
and traced a circle on the table. All I can say about my behavior earlier in my life is that I was young and capricious, to use your words. I hated my parents' marriage. I thought my mother put up with my father's crap way too often. I was angry a lot of the time, so I guess I sold the idea of commitment short. But you know what? I wasn't very happy then, either. His face settled into a brooding expression I hadn't seen before. Were you depressed, do you think, by your parents' relationship? I don't know. I know what that's like, being unhappy and angry. I've had times like that. We We stared stared at each each other other for a minute. minute. About our pasts, I guess it's a risk, isn't it? Loving someone, trusting them. I turn Nathaniel's hand, palm up. I can take that risk if you can. (laughs) What? Let me in on the joke. Part of me feels like I'm jumping off a cliff. And another part is thrilled that I can jump so far. Nathaniel looked pleased. I think that's just how we should feel. How do you know? I have no idea. Something I learned from old movies, I think. Well, there's that. Maybe if things start falling apart, we can find one that gets us through it. (laughs) (laughs) Mm, So, do you want to get married? I was still startled by the whole idea, but I told myself to quit thinking. Yes. 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 What a wonderful story. In and itself, the unfolding of things that each one of them has maybe not faced themselves and then was worried about what would happen when the other person thought about it. It's this, there are many, many closet doors are opened in this interaction. Right. They both have been in the closet in a way, in different ways. Um, I think it's important to mention that they are both young. They're like 31 years old. So some of their navel gazing, I think, is just that, being young. Mm -hmm. It's right on time. And it's interesting, though, that they sit there at 31 and say, Oh, this shit happened when I was young. (laughs) I know. (laughs) As if it were another age. And those of us who are over 31. Yes. And that would include us and a couple, three people in our audience. That's uh, right. That's extra funny for us. What's delightful about this, though, is that there's this heaviness where they're talking about trust and honor and fidelity and and consistency and and whether they're trustworthy and they look at their past behavior and it's not really boding well on one level for that. Yet there they are. There's this playfulness and appeal and comfort in the pace and the content of their conversation that I wouldn't say fights the heaviness, but it leavens it. And it uh, it makes it palatable and even appealing. Yeah, it's it's like uh, for them at this moment, this is so momentous. And, and they've both opened the door. I mean, he's opening the door on his family that clearly wasn't a happy family. Um, the parents didn't get along. There were problems. She's opening the door about having been bisexual. They're opening the door, and they want to let each other through, but they're scared. And that really is a test moment. What we stick in the closet, metaphorically, I think sometimes we do to protect other people, and also other times we do it to protect ourselves, what we presume other people will say. Right. And so when when we either let something out or it falls out, that's a key moment. An interesting thing is that this book is set during the Great Recession, So it starts in 2007 when the markets are kind of at their peak, and then it goes through 
2008 and 2009, and one of the main characters is a stockbroker who loses some money and lots of money, actually, of his dad. So that's another closet in the book, the trust or mistrust of managing or not finance and what that recession did to people. It kind of sent them back into the closet. It was also pre-gay marriage, and obviously lots of gay lesbian rights were coming out of the closet at that time. Well, I think we should talk about the cat scratching at the door I know. for food. Oh my gosh. All right. Gosh. So demanding food, water. What next? We'll be right back. And you're back for the second portion of The Unruly Muse, and we are talking about closets. And this theme was recommended by a listener, was it not? Yes, Deb Petrie, who lives in Corrales, New Mexico, uh, who listens to our show. And we always entertain suggestions from our listeners through this one at us. And indeed, she's right. There are so many kinds of closets, not just the obvious sexuality closet, which has sort of dominated thinking, but socioeconomic things, uh, family secrets, you know, things we've been discussing here. Yes, uh, either pretending to be religious or pretending to be atheistic or pretending to be a liberal so you can pass your college class or whatever it might be. There's lots of hiding and pretending and face-making going on. Yeah, I think I think to be alive means you have secrets and that you hide in some aspect of your life. And then those positions change as you get older, but you can't always have the door wide open. No, that's, uh, that's the TMI syndrome, right? Yes. I don't mean Three Mile Island, although it can't get explosive. <laughs> well, th- th- speaking of strange things happening that you wouldn't expect, Folks are married forever, and still, yes. though, there's that there's that constant revelation that comes through when you stop and say, what are we and what are we doing? And this next poem we have digs into that. Yes, the, the poem is called Dear Husband from Afar. It's by Barbara Rockman, who lives in Santa Fe, New Mexico. The poem is from her recent collection, To Cleave. And the book itself is an exploration of marriage and relationship. And when I read this poem, I thought, oh my gosh, the closets that are in marriage are so deep and wide. And so we were very happy when Barbara agreed that we could perform this poem. We're only going to perform half of it, which is about the wife talking to the husband. The second half of the poem is the husband responding to the wife. We're going to read this one. Dear Husband from Afar by Barbara Rockman. Dear Husband from Afar, par avion. I am abashed. I'd prefer this missive discursive, not listed, but there is the getting through, getting right to. Enclosed, please find a slim page, width of my smallest finger, on which I have transcribed in cursive with a fine-tipped ink. Cruelties committed in marriage. Upon opening the arrow envelope, out will fall a miniature page which... Hitting the floor, 
will curl into a tight scroll the way a spider furls to hide. And shelter. You will flick or toothpick wide what will resist my list. Which requires not forgiveness with thumb pressure unwind. Spread tight. It reminds you of my wrongs. It is my confessional. My chagrin, my humbling. This is bumbling preface to the mission. A public list, missive of my misdoings. Frequent eye-rolling which interprets you unworthy. The hurry-up my hands do to urge you to your tale's crescendo. Refusal to face you full frontal, especially upon arrival, as, Oh, he's home, ho-hum. Countless, the turnings from your touch in the lair we share. I recoil. Practice of interruption. Omission of affection. Deletion of praise. This is phase one. Uno. Uh. Mere shred of what might further this endeavor. Rebuttal is expected. I ask you, am I a liar of the long marriage? Pretender to ardor? Hypocrite of love? You have a likely list to ensue. If this diction seems archaic, florid, and distant, not consensual... It is all I can flourish to disengage from love's long fallacy. To face the plain and painful, I pursue it through an altered tenor. Husband of multiple decades, I promise nothing. No, not my intention. Nor my capacity for retention. Tenir, in French. I learned the tenses. In marriage, I need... A lesson. I am a mess of nerves. Worry that what retains us... House, health... Insurance, daughters grown, the dogless rooms... Is fiction. This wound scroll, flimsy, thin, and winged... Weighs less than what I conjure our current love to be. And yet from its rent fabric a thread might stitch us. A fresh sleeve. Not undo, but do us. A button at its cuff, and so. In hope, adieu. adieu. Well, that's just marvelous, Barbara. Maybe we'll have to do the second part sometime, but I'll just say that the husband doesn't have any of these misgivings. He's quite happy, happy with the marriage and responds very well. And so these are her closet fears. As I took my part in this, at first I thought, well, is this is this right for two voices? But I imagined him reading it. Yeah. And, and it works fantastically as a conversation between her voice and his voice, even though it's her speaking to him. And isn't that how it works sometimes, I think, when we write, especially something to someone we know very well who knows our voice and our melody? that we write it and then we read it as we hope or think they will. Yeah. And the other reason it works so well, I think, for two voices is she's talking to herself. You know, on the one hand, on the other hand, she's looking at herself really closely in that divided way that we do in our minds. Mm -hmm. But that list that she, her misdoings that she lays out there uh, (laughs) is a great example of something we talked about or it illustrates something we talked about earlier in that something that we think has been offensive or being worthy of being hidden or apologized for wasn't any problem at all. I know. So, you know, I like it when you roll your eyes, you know. I like it when you interrupt me because at least you knew I was talking. That's true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. At least you want yeah. me to hurry up and but but to be there, <laughs> but to be there. That's right. Yeah. So but the details of this are great 
And the the use of this thin slip of paper. Oh, I know. Itself all wound up and bunched and then spread out with a toothpick. Then that thing, which is so small and almost minimizes the, the gravity of what she's listing. It's almost like, I'm not going to write this on big paper. It's It doesn't deserve, you know, 12-point type. It deserves a, a shred, a sliver. But then at the end... That little, that rent fabric, that wound scroll, she says, flimsy and thin, that becomes the thing that says to her, some thread might come out of this act of contrition that could help us continue. Yes, it's going to stitch us together. It's going to stitch us a fresh sleeve, not undo, but do us. Well, I wondered, of course, how long has this little slip of paper been in the closet? And is that why, does she go in there and look at it occasionally before she spoke it and wind it up tighter and tighter till it's smaller and smaller? Yeah, and there she (laughs) airmails, and then she airmails it to him in another envelope. Yes. So they must, it's like, okay, I'll wait till he's on the other side of the world. Then I'm going to send him this shaving and uh, see what happens. It's it's a lot of fun, but it's also very heavy. I mean, for anybody that's been in a long relationship, there are certain failings, I guess, on both sides that are inevitable. Yeah, and this to me is one of the greatest closet feelings when you're in a long marriage, which is, am I disappointing? Am I disappointing myself by being so small? And so she's courageous there. She lays this out, all these little things that to her are very large. They're on her mind. And that opens up the possibility for him to respond and for her to find out just how much they do matter. Yeah. And I I think when the speaker talks about the fabric is a little bit rent, but if we talk about these things, we'll get stitched up again. That really is the secret to a long marriage. You know, Mm -hmm. do not keep these feelings in the closet for too long. Get them out there. Like in your story where he says, you're worried about that? Yeah, right. (laughs) It's like this this huge thing that's been troubling her. And he's thinking, good God, you know, there are far bigger things to worry about. Well, closet as a metaphorical space is a huge universe all its own. But closets are real spaces, too. Really tiny little rooms where everything that doesn't have another place goes. And sometimes we do hide physical things in there, tuck them away, a box of coins or whatever it might be. That's why we need your song. We need your next song, John, Closet's Gonna Sing, because we want to know what is really in that closet. Teddy bears, lawn chairs, dustpans, beer cans, wool coats, plastic boats, vacuum cleaners, carabiners, tennis rackets, shelf brackets, empty kegs and wooden legs. Yeah, we've got everything, yeah, we've got everything. Don't you bring a thing, cause we got everything. Cause it's gonna sing, yeah, we got everything. Iron boards, power cords, back of quarters and sack tomatoes, Box, gray socks, underwear, pet hair, prom crowns, wedding gowns, school pictures of twin sisters. Dad's parole, tax forms, peppercorns, ad libs, baby bids, play doh, a dog named Joe, mouse traps, road maps, stacks of money and jars of honey. Well, we got everything, yeah, we got everything. Don't you bring the thing, cause we got everything. 
Cause it's gonna sing, yeah, we got everything We got love letters, Irish setters, funny hats, baseball bats, chainsaws, bowling balls and memorabilia A place to feel you, table sections, stamp collections, an old bassoon that's out of tune Yeah, we got everything, yeah, we got everything Don't you bring a thing, cause we got everything Cause it's gonna sing, yeah, we got everything You have made the closet talk, John. Closet's going to sing, and hats off to Johnny Cash for his great song, I've Been Everywhere, which I was doing, I wouldn't say a parody of, but I borrowed wholesale. So Uh thank you, JC. Well, what I loved was roadmaps in the closet, and I was thinking, oh my gosh, is in the closet the desire to travel or some bad trip that they... (laughs) <laughs> the map the map to the bad trip gets shoved in the closet. I mean, yeah. talk talk to us about the big job that closets have, John. Part of what goes in there are things that used to be essential, like a road atlas, that are obsolete, but we still don't want to let go, right? Like yeah. you can go online and use dictionary.com, but I bet you've got a dictionary stashed away somewhere. Right. And uh, it's like <laughs> it's like the phone book. We actually keep a phone book. And guess where we keep it? By the phone, in a drawer that almost never gets opened. Yeah. Uh, and that's that's another little closet. Things that might be useful. So that's one thing that goes in there. But then all other kinds of stuff. It's It's not a room that gets cleaned very often. So that's why you've got pet hair and all kinds of other weird stuff in there. But yeah, it's just, it's such a cool room, the the typical hall closet or home closet. And people talk about it with an interesting uh, reverence because of the strong metaphorical condensation around the word, but also because in a person's house next to the medicine cabinet, I think the closet is one of those private spaces where We really don't want people digging around too much. Well, and the other thing is that human beings have to compartmentalize or we would be overwhelmed all the time by all the perceptions, all the news, all the stuff being thrown at us. Right. So the closet really is an important way. I mean, metaphorically, it's it's the way we put some things out of view so we can focus on others. And it's the same thing with the objects, especially as Americans who are living in the relative lap of luxury in world history. We've got more stuff than we know what to do with. And mm-hmm. so what do we do? Well, I'll stick the vacuum cleaner next to the bowling ball, next to a golf club, next to a stuffed animal, next to school pictures, next to all the other stuff that's in there just because I don't know where else to put it. In this song, The Closet gives it up. It says, look at all this stuff that that we've got. And in a way, it's a little bit of a celebration of abundance that yes. we can stash away all of these things. And, and then a little bit of a satire. We have to do a show on the landfill. <laughs> <laughs> After well, you this. know, it might, come, it might come to that. It depends on how trashy we want to get on The Unruly Muse. I love how you call the song a satire. I really was surprised that I could talk about closets in a song because it's just such a nasty word. It's just poetically and, and, and you know melodically, it's just not a whole lot to work with. But as soon as I remember Johnny Cash's song, which is a list of places he's been, I thought, mm-hmm. great, we can just list stuff that's in the closet. And yeah. then it just basically took care of itself. Well, I think we should think about what we will follow the closet with. And we certainly have talked about next time exploring the complicated word faith. 
And what we're going to try to do is tread through that territory of faith and attached terms and achieve something that very few people in history have achieved, and that is not pissing anybody off. Well, that'll be amazing. I mean, first of all, <laughs> we hope we occasionally piss people off. But Well, um, yeah, we haven't tried. <laughs> no, we haven't even tried. That's the sad part or the good part. Is that the good part? Well, well, we will explore the ways we show faith and have faith. And you've got to have some faith or you don't get through life, right? Mm-hmm. And it doesn't always have to do with religion. No, no, not at all. That's what's going to be fun about the episode, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, well, we really hope that we get some listener response about our closets episode. Please get in touch with us on theunrulymuse.net. And you can listen to the podcast there, but you can also get connected up to emailing us there and let us know what you think. We love it. And before we go, I want to give a quick thank you to my brother Dan Modaf for that mandolin work on the Melod of Molly Bean and to Beautiful. our buddy Dave Merrill out in Virginia who blew some mean harmonica on Closet's Gonna Sing. Thank you, boys. Thank you very much, boys. We've been listening to The Unruly Muse. Till next time. I'm John Modaf. And I'm Lynn Miller. 